Hi everyone, today we're publishing the last episode of this podcast series during our holiday giving drive. Uh, there are 10 days left to support the drive, so if you uh, have given already, thank you so much for supporting us and helping this podcast survive and get to all the people who listen to it. The online drive ends on the 31st um, and we'll accept checks for about 10 days after that, so if you are planning to mail in a check, that's also totally fine and you have plenty of time to do it. This podcast is free and available to everyone because those who are able to make a donation to the Institute um, or purchase something from our online store, do so. So if you can support us, please do. It really helps. Uh, also, there's just a, a bunch of things going on, so I'll run through it kind of quickly. Um, Analyst Training Program is accepting applications through January 15th. More information is available on our website. We have two webinars open for registration right now, um, although you know not everyone is thinking about January right now. And then our holiday sale will also run through the 31st of December, which is 20% off all downloads. Uh, just use the code HOLIDAY on the card page before checkout. Okay, thanks. the Jung Anthology podcast from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Jung in the world, C.G. Jung the modernist with Rula Maria Dib. Patricia Martin, who is interviewing Rula Maria Dib today, is going to introduce her. So I'll just say for a full bio and links to things she's doing, check the show notes. Okay, and let's jump right in. Hello, this is Patricia Martin, and welcome to Jung Anthology. I'm a professional affiliate at the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago, and I'll be your host today. In this series, we'll be talking with people whose work intersects with Jung's ideas to tell a more contemporary story of his enduring impact in a brave new world. Today on Jung in the World, we have Rula Maria Dibb, a professor of English at the American University in Dubai. She views Carl Jung as a modernist and has written about the power of the modernist moment in history to give rise to the discipline of psychology. Her book, Jungian Metaphor in Modernist Literature, creates the new context for understanding Carl Jung's work and his most important theories in the context of the collective in which he lived. Hello, this is Patricia Martin. Today I have with me Rula Maria Dibb, Assistant Professor of English at the American University of Dubai. And Rula Maria, you, you study Jung, Carl Jung, from the perspective of him as a writer and in the context mm -hmm. of being a modernist writer. So that's another uh -huh. aspect of it um, through which you see the work of Carl Jung and not only the work of Carl Jung, but Carl Jung, the man. And that's the, that's the question I had as I was reading through some of your work. So, um, tell me first how you think that looking at Jung as a writer and as his, at his work as literature, 
How does that give you a different perspective on Jung the man? Okay, well, um, the thing is, I don't think we can we can separate the two. Uh, Jung the man and Jung as a literary figure are one and the same, and this is because um, Jung kind of, I mean, as a, as a literary scholar, I find that whatever Jung found to make up the person is is the road to art and it's the road to expressing those, those archetypes, those energies that we have in. So, um, and, and, you know, uh, for example, literature and other fields that are similar uh, art fields, um, they're all called the humanities. So it's, it's, you know, everything that makes us human, um, everything that uh, Jung experienced as a person uh, kind of led him towards that road as well. So um, as we can see in his red book, for example, which is a, a creative work, and uh, it was also a work that was considered very highly personal. And at the same time, um, it, was a, um, it, it was a basis for most of his theories. So you also talk about Jung as in his age. And uh-huh. so many Jungian scholars talk about Jung the man as a more internal person. You know, he was he, he, he was very focused on his inner work. Um, he spent a lot of time alone. He wasn't out in the world in the way you might consider other people, other scholars of his time. So for this very introspective writer, you still place him as a modernist. So what I'm curious about first is explain to me what you mean by that about being a modernist. Okay, so well, if if we look at the the early modernist period, or let's say the 1900s Europe, we see that it went through uh, Europe went through an era of revolutionary changes, which affected all aspects of life. So there we had Sigmund Freud inventing psychoanalysis, Max Planck founding quantum physics, uh, the Wright brothers. Um, in you know uh, not so far from that, uh, went on their first airplane flight. Uh, Albert Einstein developed the theory of relativity, and we had Cubism and Pablo Picasso, Kandinsky also inventing abstract painting, and um, also the first composition of what we call atonal music was written during that time by Schoenberg. And of course, the first world war began in 1914, and then we had the Russian Revolution in 1917. So there was this revolutionary spirit. There was the spirit of making it new. And, um, and the, revolution, the revolution was happening in many different fields. Um, and uh, well, to use the Jungian term, it was a synchro- there was a synchronistic connection. Um, they all went towards exploring this inner, this, this hidden, this abstract and more fundamental realm of the world. So, you know, the inner world was a big thing, whether it was in discovering psychoanalysis or even quantum physics, um, the new form of modern art and all that. So this sense of the revolution um, is, I mean, it's rooted in in the inner world, in in exploring what is hidden and what is more abstract. For example, quantum physicists discovered the um, non-empirical realm and they spoke about it. Um, modern artists, um, you know, they stopped using verisimilitude they, and they started looking at the essence of things uh, behind their actual visible, visible forms. 
And of course, psychologists um, and Jung uh, were looking at the unconscious. So Jung was part of this. He was part of the revolution of modernism. Um, first of all, because he was, okay, he was born during the time that coincided with all that, but also because all of his concepts were part of the modern and the modernist turn towards the subject and towards the, you know, towards what was behind the surface. Um, he saw the personal uh, and empirical psyche, both the conscious and unconscious, as a function of, of you know, the, the equally transcendent collective unconscious. Um, he also resonates well with the spirit of the times, and he was he was actually able to influence people in a moral psychological way um, because he you know he didn't only look at the empirical side of things, but he also focused on the spiritual. Um, and like many modernists who broke with the 19th century styles by borrowing lots of elements from the past, he did the same. So by looking at medieval works, uh, by looking at mythology, um, and, you know, I, I find it here that modernism embraces Jung, who found in mythology and alchemy and medieval texts uh, a way to find the psychic coherence uh, when beset by, you know, by the loss of of traditional forms of things, traditional beliefs, uh, religion, and, and all that. So um, he comes to, you know, he probably realizes or helped people realize that modernism was a great investment in shattering traditions that no longer seem to function culturally. Um, for example, although he was not a fan of modern art, um, as we know from his essays on Ulysses and Picasso uh, as well, or modernist writing, but Jung, Jung appreciated it. And he found that the fragmentation and the, um, the manipulation of reality that we see in modern art is a sort of collective manifestation of the, you know, the heart of the moment, uh, the artist's cultural moment in modernism. Mm. And um, since the artist, and by the artist, I also mean the writer and anyone else pursuing an art, uh, since the artist follows the, um, you know, this current of collective life, as he calls it, stemming out of the collective unconscious, uh, he also comments on how the modern artist uh, who creates these distortions, uh, creates them for uh, creative purposes and healing purposes as well. So instead of seeing them as a sign of insanity, which he did somehow in the beginning, uh, he found he he somehow came around and found destructiveness to be where the writer and the artist finds unity uh, in his personality, the unity of his artistic personality, as he said. So, so you, are um, you saying there that? Excuse me. Are you saying there that art is part of a, uh, an expression that makes us whole? It you know, enga engaging yeah, the absolutely. imagination, which is yes. a, a theory of Jung's as well. Active imagination is a way to kind of work out things that we can't articulate um, in any uh -huh. other way. And uh, so it, am I hearing you right to say that um, some of his expressions and writing and other peoples of his, uh, people of his time, it was a way to make themselves whole in a modern world. Right. It was a way of making themselves whole, um, starting with acknowledging the brokenness that yeah. they were suffering from. So this distortion of reality, this, um, 
this no space, if you want to call it, for verisimilitude and, um, you know, expressing reality in, in a mimetic way, this is a reflection of a different reality, not the physical reality, not the, not the reality that is out there, but the reality that is inside. So, I mean, as we said, there were the world wars, there were lots of revolutions, uh, concepts were being shattered. And in the process as well, people were were getting hurt. They were being confused. They were feeling out of place. Um, they were feeling a lack of spirituality. So expressing this in art uh, and the active imagination as well. So what he calls psychic synthesis in his essay on, on Ulysses. Uh, this was a, um, a healing process or part of the individuation process as well. So I, I read something recently. Uh, it was in Deirdre Bear's biography of Carl Jung. Mm -hmm. And she makes the case that uh, Jung was very intentional, actually, about his style of writing. And Maria mm -hmm. von Franz also underscored that, that he, it, it wasn't a random exercise because I think everyone pretty much agrees that many of the modernists, uh, you know, Ulysses was written by James Joyce, and most people consider it one of the most difficult novels to read. It was difficult work. Proust was difficult um, because they're dealing with a lot of abstraction. So, uh -huh. you know, von Franz said that this was um, purposeful, the way that Carl Jung wrote. What do you make of that? You mean his, his work, the collected works? Yes, his work is... Um, you know, I, I, when I talk to colleagues at the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago, there's a lot of discussion about the accessibility of Carl Jung. And I think we, many of the institutes around the world, they exist to kind of explain the work, the written work. I mean, it, the text is what we have. So uh -huh. I'm curious, you know, what do you make of his writing style? Well, if we look at the collected works, we can actually see it as both, um, we'd see them as a modernist work of literature and at the same time, a modernist work of, of science. Um, and maybe that's where the intentional factor comes in as well. I mean, he wants to teach, but he teaches by demonstrating. Mm -hmm. um, the collected works demonstrate a psychology that is centered around the creative unconscious as a source of meaning, as a source of feeling, as a source of value. If we look at the um, uh, volume 15 of the collected works, for example, the one um, on the spirit of man and art and literature, uh, Jung does not really write about the psyche. He performs it, he enacts it in his writing. Uh, again, his essays on Picasso and Ulysses especially show that. Um, in, in Ulysses, um, for instance, he shows the process of his psychic synthesis after suffering from boredom and from uh, not being able to understand or appreciate the extremely difficult novel, uh, but ultimately appreciating Joyce's work. So yes, there is this factor of he was being intentional, but at the same time, he was showing us in a way that is similar to real time, um, his suffering, the reading process, the level of engagement that he was making, and then what he, what he got out of it. So um, this is the work that he didn't like. This is what he called the, um, the moving from eschatology to scatology. <laughs> so, uh, but he, he shows us to, he shows 
to us how he eventually comes to not really understand, but appreciate it in a way um, that is very, very intentional. And he also beautifully expresses, you know, the turn to myth as an essential factor um, for narratives and for understanding the psyche. Um, and, And yes, I mean, his work is creative, but at the same time, it is scientific. And as you say, it is intentional, but in a more demonstrative sense. He, he wants to show how mythological expression is more exact. So this is why he uses the creative methods um, rather than the typical language of science, which he doesn't completely move away from, but he's not, he's not particularly stuck in it. Well, so as you know, Susan Rowland said, he's a trickster, you know, the trickster <laughs> writer. Yes, I would agree. You know, plowing through the collected works is um, it's not for sissies. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a serious body of work. And I'm curious, you teach this. Do you teach it as literature? Do you teach it as a humanities, uh, from a humanities point of view, like in the totality of his times and, you know, mytho- the piece of, of mythology that you talked about? How do you approach it? Well, actually, I don't, I don't teach a course on Jung yet, but I have one that was ready to be launched next semester, which is, you know, where I will be teaching the, the collected works, but I do teach pieces of it in my mythology class and um, in my creative writing class as well. So I, I find it, actually the students find it very interesting to learn about what the collective unconscious is. So um, it's kind of, it, it's, I give the basics of the collective unconscious and of what active imagination is just to sort of, you know, get them going on what it is like to write from a Jungian perspective. So um, I don't teach a course dedicated to Jung yet, but I do incorporate uh, his collected works in my literature courses, and especially when I'm teaching modernist literature and uh, in mythology and in creative writing. So that's where you know, they get the the better portion of Jung in the creative writing course, actually. Oh, that's interesting. So I guess you're sort of teaching them a little bit about what creative writing can actually do for them in their lives and making uh-huh. them whole and as a process of individuation. Do I have that right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So and I'm- mostly because uh, because of there's lots of writer's block. And I really find that the Jungian method of active imagination, of actively engaging with an image, that helps them a lot. So this is a, an interesting thought that, you know, Jung was so dedicated in his writing and in, in his thinking uh, to this idea of the symbol. And uh-huh. I'm curious to know, how, how, how do you incorporate that? And actually, I would really like to know your thoughts on the power of the symbol uh, in, in teaching about the modernist era, just in general, like what is, how does it service the teaching? Well, the symbol, uh, well, the symbol plays a very, very important role because it is what knits us into the cosmos. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it doesn't have a fixed meaning. It's, it's a universe of potentialities. It's a, it's a whole universe of possibilities 
So it is, um, I mean, that is, that is how we look at it usually. So when interpreting a poem, for example, or even symbolism that we find in, in short stories and, and other pieces of prose, um, we do tend to pay special focus to the symbol because symbols are a language that, that you know, they actually give creative writing this quality of non-fixedness. So the quality of being open to interpretation, of meaning different things, of, um, you know, of a text transforming with every reader. Um, so, and I mean, the way Jung sees it, he sees it as a language that is open to hosting anything in the unconscious. Um, science can also be symbolic, but literature, I mean, that's, that's different. When you open the door through symbols, you are opening the door to many, many possibilities. So they're not, they're not confined to definitions. They're not confined to things like signs. So when we look at the difference between signs and symbols, we find that symbols are, you know, that what connect us to this greater, the, the vast universe of, of archetypes out there. Because it's the, um, it's the expression of the archetype. So what do you think is the greatest contribution that Carl Jung made through his writing to Western culture? That's a huge question, I know, but I'm very curious, right. you know, what did he leave behind? What's his legacy? Well, um, a lot, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so first of all, there's this, the bridge between the arts and the sciences that he, um, that he shows through his writing. I mean, if we look at what Jung was criticized for the most, uh, oftentimes he was criticized as being um, a mystic rather than a scientist, although he was a psychiatrist. So he, he knew a thing or two about science and, um, you know, he, he was great in both. It's just that he saw this fusion between art and science, between spirit and, and psyche. Um, he was very interdisciplinary in his approach. So during a time when many, when lots of things were being shattered and broken and deconstructed, um, his deconstruction was actually a constructive approach of returning the whole together. So instead of seeing different disciplines as completely um, unrelated to each other, no, he was he was able to show us that, you know, this is all part of one whole. So his psychology was a psychology of connection rather than a psychology of separation um, in literature as well. So not just the writer, but when we involve the reader here, the reader as engaging with the text um, in a Jungian way. So with the, with the uh, active imagination and, and all that, this again, this is a very engaging psychology. It's one of connection. Um, other than that, I mean, I don't know much about the Myers-Briggs personality uh, scale test, but I know that he's had a huge influence on, on HR um, and, um, you know, concepts such as introvert and extrovert. Uh, well, we, we owe that to Jung. And um, he's also had a huge influence on film. Um, I mean, not necessarily with Jungians, but um, most producers or most script writers know a lot about Jung and they use these archetypal, um, not images, I don't want to call them images, but you know, the, um, 
the, the types, the personality types right. in order to come up with, with characters and, um, you know, to, to complicate plots. Uh, we also find novelists doing that as well. So, for example, in, in science fiction, um, Ursula Le Guin's writing uh, is very highly influenced by Jung. Of course, the importance of metaphor, the importance of symbols. Um, and um, I mean, this whole realization that we are all a manifestation of something that is greater than us. That was the most profound gift that he had given to the modern age and onwards. That's a really good point to sort of jump off from is that we live now in a world where we're very atomized and, you know, we're, we're connected virtually, but it's not the same for the psyche. Many people theorize, um, and it's, and, you know, in that way of creating a container and, you know, having a, a group consciousness arise, it's, it's a different platform through which uh-huh. we individuate, right? It, it, the virtual world. And so mm-hmm. as you look out at that, I, I would be very curious to know how you think, and this is a, you know, a very open-ended question. What would you, what do you think Jung would say about the collective unconscious in the virtual world? Do you have thoughts on that? Hmm. Well, that's very interesting because the virtual world is sort of like another microcosm, if you want to, if you want to see it that way. Um, I think Jung would have seen it like that uh, as another form of the microcosm, you know, this, this one world where we all interact, uh, where there's everything, where we can be connected um, it is boundary breaking in so many ways. Um, for example, I'm um, I'm the editor of Indelible, the literary journal, literary and arts journal, and we have a lot of online events, online poetry readings, where we have people joining us from different parts of the world, different time zones. So for some people, it's midnight; for others, it's early morning, and we're there. We're we're in sync. You know, we're there through poetry, through art, through conversation. And if you think about it, it's pretty neat. I mean, it's it's really magical in that mm-hmm. sense. So we're all sharing um, archetypal images, right. whether through poetry or through art. So we're all there in, in real time, live, and sharing these expressions of the collective unconscious through archetypal energies made into archetypal images. So I hear so, what, you're, what you're saying uh, is this is kind of unifying. The walls are coming uh-huh. down and, you know, we're Absolutely. able to cross cultures. And so there's a real benefit to it in terms uh-huh. of how we individuate. That's what I'm hearing. Does that sound right? Yeah. So I, and, and we, you know, we've seen a lot of of people benefit from this, you know, it, mm-hmm. it was healing, not just during lockdown, but it's the feeling of connectedness that it gives. I mean, that's that's great. At a time when, you know, we use the term social distancing, which is a very isolating term, actually. So, um, I mean, this has helped. This The virtual world has helped a lot. Well, good for you for doing that outreach to, to help people sort of get out of that isolation. 
I, you know, as I, as I think about your work and I was, you know, reading through some of your, your essays, I, I wondered to myself, as I do everybody really, when I, you know, I'm about to interview them, I, I wonder how did you come to Jung? What was your, what was your path to Jung? It's, it's always a fascination for me. It was actually a university professor. Um, I think we were reading, I think it was Toni Morrison's Beloved. Ah. And uh, I don't know how, um, but she, she asked us if anyone had read Joseph Campbell before. And, um, you know, none of us had read Joseph Campbell back then. Uh, and then she told us about how Joseph Campbell and, you know, she started talking about Jung and the hero and um, the archetypes. And I felt that there was a lot of embodiment, archetypal embodiment in, um, in the novel that we were reading, which was Beloved. So I, I started reading. I think the first thing I read was Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. Mm. And, um, I mean, a lot of things made a lot of sense to me. Mm. And um, I decided to write my MA thesis on Jung. And uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Mm. And uh, it was Victor, Victor Hugo's uh, Notre Dame de Paris as well. And Don Quixote. So these were three different, very, very different texts taken from different time periods and different cultures. But, but I thought, you know, if you really wanted to look at Jung, you might as well, in order to see this connective thread, take different things from from different places and different times, and then and then read them the Jungian way. See how they see how they show this, you know, the, the archetypal the, the the expressions of the archetypal energies that were at play. So, what's next for Rula Maria Dib? What are you working on? <laughs> Well, um, I'm working on two things, actually. Um, there's always a creative work. There's always poetry. Uh, because for me, poetry is, it's kind of a, it's a ritual, really. So um, I, I really enjoy writing poems almost on a daily basis. And then every now and then I kind of, I filter them out and then see what I want, see what I don't want. And I, you know, I keep them on the side just in case they become a collection. So I think there will be a new collection coming up sometime soon, maybe uh, next year, early next year. Um, but my research now is mainly about Jung and quantum physics and literature. So this, uh, the world of possibilities in, in the reader, in the reader's mind and in the novelist, this, this really fascinates me. And that I'm taking a closer look at quantum physics. Yes. Wow. You don't lack for ambition, Rula Maria. That's a, that's, you know, it, that's... it's curiosity. <laughs> yes. it's, it's more, yeah, curiosity. You're always looking for answers. Mm -hmm. um, it's more than ambition. It's like, it's like, I want to know, I want to know more about this. There's, mm -hmm. there's more to it than that. And, and I think Jung also saw that there was, there was a lot more to everything than meets the eye. And this is what kind of led him to finding or discovering and, and developing theories on the collective unconscious and the archetypes and active imagination and making them part of our daily lives. 
Well, I, I look forward to uh, hearing back from you. We'll reach out after you have mounted this course that you're planning and, and see how it's going. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.youngchicago.org. Thank you to our 2020 donors who gave at the contributing member level and above. Barbara Anand, Usha Anashar Beatty, Jackie Cabe Bryan, Eric Cooper and Judith Cooper, Kevin Davis, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, James Fidelibus, John Korolewski, Marty Manning, Diane Sherwood, Deborah P. Stutzman, Deborah Tobin, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Kopp, Gerald Weiner, Karen West and James Taylor, and Ellen Young. If you would like to join our generous community of supporters, just go to youngchicago.org slash give.